Well, thanks for being at Grace today. We're glad that every one of you are here. And boy, we've got a packed house, don't we? That's great. Great celebration of Easter morning. So if you're sitting in here, or if you're in our overflow in room one or watching online, wherever you're at, we're glad that you're tuning in to Grace. Thanks for being with us. Easter Sunday morning, again, beautiful, beautiful day. We're going to get started at my portion of the sermon in just a second, but before I do that, I want to, want to let you know that uh, that's already been said. Next week, we start a brand new series called Ideal Family. We're going to have a lot of fun with that. Here's an example right here. All right, can anybody relate to that? You know what we're talking about? Yeah, so if you want to learn how to deal with your ideal family, uh, come next Sunday. We'll be all over that. And today, we're, we're kind of wrapping up something that we've been talking about which is uncovering the historical Jesus. And the reason we've been talking about this is we realize that in our world today, there's a lot of people, almost everyone knows a little bit about Jesus, but most people don't know a whole lot about Jesus. And because of that, they know a little bit, and then they kind of fill in the blanks on what their expectations of Jesus should be. And because they do that, they end up with an inaccurate picture of who Jesus actually is. And because of that, a lot of people kind of view Jesus as kind of like Mr. Rogers, that he's a really, really nice guy who says a lot of really, really nice things and he would never offend anyone. That's not the historical Jesus. As a matter of fact, we know that uh, the real Jesus, he offended people a lot. Because he not only talked about things we like to hear about, love and, and uh, loving your neighbor as yourself, he also talked about tough things like sin and hell and judgment. And so we're all about looking right back to the first century and discovering who the real Jesus really was. And when we talk about the resurrection, I mean, that's what we're here for, right? To celebrate the resurrection on Easter. Uh, we have an account in Scripture by an eyewitness named Matthew in the first century, and here's what he says about the resurrection in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they'll see me. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews as it is to this day. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Christianity is maybe the only world religion that's not just based on its founder's teachings. Christianity is actually based on a historical event. And because of that, Christianity is the world religion that you could actually prove to be false if you could prove that the resurrection never happened. That's why the resurrection is so important. As a matter of fact, if the resurrection didn't happen, then all of Christianity would just be kind of a sad joke. That's what Paul said in the first century. Actually, 1 Corinthians was one of the first books written. It was written in the first century about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And here's what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians, beginning in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is, this is Paul writing about the appearances of Jesus. And we could only imagine if we were there, right? What if you were there in the first century and a friend of yours came running up to you breathlessly and she says, it's true, I saw him. And you're going, Who? Jesus, the one who was crucified last Friday. I saw him. He's, he's, he's alive. It's true. Now, we understand why she would believe, because she saw him. But the question is, why would you believe? What would you be looking for that you could believe that besides this eyewitness's testimony? Well, to me, there's kind of two types of evidence I think that helps people kind of grasp the resurrection. And, and I'll call it rock evidence and ripple evidence. And what if I went out to White Star Park? You know, that's where they have the quarry, the big lake. Anybody been there? What if I was out at White Star and just doing some guy stuff? I got together with my friends and we built a catapult that could throw a three-ton rock into the water just to see the splash. So we build the catapult, we're, we're pumped about it, and sure enough, we launch this thing, there's, and there's hundreds of people standing around the lake wondering what we're up to, so they're all watching, and we launch this rock, and it hits, and it's great, you know, we're just loving it. And then a friend of mine runs up to me right after that happened and says, 
Uh, what happened? What's everybody standing around for? I'm like, I just launched a three-ton rock into the quarry lake. Oh, it was so cool. And then the, and your friend says, ah, no way. I don't believe it. That did not happen. You're kidding. And so you have two ty- types of evidence. You have the rock evidence where I'd be going, well, well, look over there. See this indent in the ground? That's, where the, that's how big the rock was. That's where it was lying. And, and here's the catapult that we use to throw it in there. And by the way, here are these hundreds of people. Go ask them. They all saw it. Rock evidence. But then I could also, if he came soon enough, I could say, look at the water. You see see the ripples? You see how it's still splashing around? The ripples going out from the center? That's what it did. You can see the evidence right there. And so I think it's the same way with the resurrection. When when we're trying to, to help people see the truth of an event, we have two things. We've got the rock evidence, the ripple evidence. For example, and, and by the way, I think uh, that there's three questions that we, we want to we cover here. And that is, why believe in the resurrection? What's it mean and how to respond? So why believe? Rock evidence, ripple evidence, rock evidence. Jesus, first of all, Jesus predicted his resurrection. I mean, it, this is a home run. Jesus predicted his resurrection so often that even his enemies knew about the predicted resurrection, right? That's why the Jewish people went to the Roman authorities. That's why they sealed the tomb. That's why the Romans put a a cohort of guards there to guard the tomb because they knew Jesus said he was going to come back from the dead in three days. They all got that. And this is amazing. I mean, Jesus called his shot, right? How many of you filled out NCAA bracket? basketball bracket. And, and how many's bracket is still perfect? No, I didn't think so. Okay, you had me going there for a minute. Yeah, well, just think about this. What if a guy said, hey, I'm going to fill out a bracket. I'm just going to fill out one bracket. I've never done this before. I'm going to do one, and it's going to be perfect. Every game is going to be right, and then when it comes down to the final game, I'm going to have the score. I'm going to do the whole thing, and he did it. I mean, The odds of that would be astounding, right? Nobody could ever do that. Do you realize Jesus predicting the resurrection was a greater odds of somebody doing a perfect bracket? He called his shot. I mean, he nailed it. He said he was coming back from the dead, and he did that. And basically, when it comes to resurrection, for all of us, whether you're a believer or not, there's just two options. Either it's true, or the disciples got together to make it up. It's the only two options. It's either true or the story was made up. It's not true. They, they're just telling a lie. But, but I got to tell you, if you're thinking the resurrection didn't happen, then that means you're saying that it was made up. And, and here, here's how I'd like to challenge all of us. Read through the witness accounts of the resurrection and tell me, do they... Do they sound like they're made up? Because they really don't for a lot of reasons. Here's one reason. In the first century, there were three dominant cultures. The Greek culture, the Roman culture, and the Jewish culture in Palestine. Three dominant cultures. In all three of those cultures, uh, they were all three kind of sexist. For example, in all three cultures, they didn't think women could be 
uh, could even testify in a court of law. Women couldn't be trusted. You can't take a woman's word. I mean, and, and that might make you mad, and, and justifiably so, but that's how it was in the first century. So if you're going to make up a story to try to, to try to promote Christianity, then why would you make up a story, all four gospel writers, and happen to mention that the first witnesses to the resurrection were all women? It doesn't make any sense. You know, I, I don't think any of us would do that if we were making it up. And the next, it's the empty tomb. The empty tomb is huge because when the resurrection was claimed, all you would have to do to shut that down is just show the body of Jesus. Just open the tomb, show him, find him, and show him. And that squelches all talk of the resurrection, which the religious leaders and, the, and even the Romans didn't want any part of. So, so they would have done it if they could, but they didn't. And everybody knew where the tomb was. It was a rich man's tomb, Joseph of Arimathea. Couldn't have been lost. I mean, the Jewish authorities knew where it was. The Roman authorities knew where it was. The women knew where it was. The disciples knew where it was. The guards who were there, they knew where it was. Everybody knew, and it was empty. And what makes that even more powerful is, is the, the third thing is the appearances of Jesus. We just read Paul talking about this. He's naming names of people who have seen the resurrected Christ. The reason he's doing that is he's writing at a time when most of these people are still living, and he's saying, you don't believe me, go ask them. He's saying it happened. And here's the people who saw him. And I know sometimes people push up, push back, and it gets a little kind of ridiculous. People say, well, it was, maybe it was a hallucination or wishful thinking or whatever, that, that they thought they saw Jesus, but they really didn't. But here Paul's pointing out he appeared to groups of people. One time, a group of 500 people. There's no such thing as, as group hallucinations. It just it doesn't happen. And that's evidence for the resurrection. Um, and by the way, for people to say they saw the resurrected Jesus would get them what? A beating, jail, arrest. I mean, they had no, no reason to lie they didn't get money or fame or anything else. And then the, the last kind of rock evidence that I want to throw out is the conversion of Paul. The reason I throw this out is because uh, I, I've got a good friend who wasn't a believer, now he's a believer. And, and as we talk through all this, um, he, he was an agnostic and we spent just a lot of time. And one of the things he would say, and he made a good point, is he'd say, yeah, well, there's a lot of Christians, but a lot of Christians are only, you know, are probably Christians because their parents were Christians or because they're in America and it's kind of a Christian nation in America. And so kind of culturally they become Christians. Well, I get that as a point, but, and many Christians that may be true of. But let, let's just kind of do a poll right here. And, and I know not everyone here w would say that they're a believer. That's okay. We, we want everyone who's here to be here. But for those of you who do say you're Christians, how many of you, when you became a believer, when you placed your trust in Christ alone, at that moment, how many of you had two believing parents when you became a Christian? Put your hands up. Okay, so quite a few. How many of you, when you became, the moment you trusted in Christ, your parents didn't believe, they were not believers at the time that you became a Christian? See, a lot of people that way. 
How many of you were like me? So don't want to leave anybody out. One person, one of your parents was a believer and one of your parents was not a believer. Anybody fit in that category? Yeah, that's where I'm at. You see, as much as we want to use that for an argument, hey, even in our own room, we can tell you, well, it's not all about family. But here's the thing about Paul. Paul was a religious Jewish person who led in the persecution of Christians. He was trained as a Jewish leader. He was, he was educated as a Jewish leader. And he was leading persecutions. And all of a sudden, he became a believer. When he did that, it was against his family. It was against his training. It was against his education. It was against all of his friends. It was against his religion. I mean, it was against everything. He had no one. And he gave it all up. Why? Because he had been confronted with the resurrected Christ. So we just kind of have to, to square with that. But I think that's the rock evidence. I think the ripple evidence can even be more convincing because it's evidence that we can still see today the effects of it. For example, ripple evidence, indirect evidence. During the first century, the Jewish people had been worshiping on the Sabbath day for 1,500 years. Orthodox Jews, that's the way they worship. The Sabbath was sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. That was their Sabbath. That's the day they picked to worship God. And they had been doing that for 1,500 years, but at some point around 30 AD, around the time of the resurrection, tens of thousands of Jewish believers started worshiping on Sunday morning. And so we know that happened, so you have to come up with why did that happen? Jewish, Jesus didn't command anybody to worship on Sunday morning. That wasn't anywhere in the Old Testament, any of the Bible that they had at that time, which was only the Old Testament. Why are these all of a sudden, tens of thousands of Jewish people who've been worshiping God on Saturday change around 30 AD where tens of thousands are now worshiping on Sunday morning. Well, that happened because of the resurrection. If it wasn't because of the resurrection, then you have to come up with a reason why that happened. And just like that, for 1,500 years at the first century, 1,500 years before the first century, the Jewish people were trained to be rabid monotheists. As a matter of fact, Jewish men uh, recited something called the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. That's how they saw the nature of God. But somewhere around 30 AD, the time of the resurrection, tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews start Change, they've changed how they saw the nature of God to where all of a sudden they believed that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. This happened. Why did tens of thousands of Jewish people, never happened in history, just all of a sudden, at this one point in time, change the nature of God? Could you imagine going to Israel today and meeting with all the Hasidic Jews in Jerusalem and somehow doing anything to convince them that day to start worshiping on Sunday morning wouldn't happen, right? 
to start seeing the nature of God differently wouldn't happen, right? So ripple effect, this happens, so you have to figure out, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why did it happen? And then the next thing is the spread of Christianity. After 30 AD, a fire was lit that spread Christianity like wildfire around the Mediterranean Sea and all over the world. And again, this happened at a time when becoming a Christian was illegal. Christians were persecuted. It was, for the first two, three hundred years of Christianity, it was open season on Christians. You could kill a Christian just for being a Christian. And at, at this, in this kind of an environment, all of a sudden, Christians, people are believing in Christ all over the place, and it's spreading like wildfire, hundreds of thousands of people becoming believers in the face of death. We've all seen pictures of the Roman Colosseum, right? Uh, right? Yeah. And, the, and we know what happened there, right? Around the first century, what was happening? Hey, for sport, uh, the emperor w- was having people killed. You know, and, they, and so you'd go watch you know, people take on lions and, and tigers and bears, you know, all this stuff. So you're just sitting in there watching all this blood sport. And to do that, first they emptied out, they just took criminals, and they had criminals fight these animals always to the death. And, and they would do that just for the sport of the people in Rome. But th- what happened? They ran out of criminals. So what they do? They next turn to Christians. And so they started, Christians started being slaughtered, given to the animals, dying because they wouldn't renounce Christ. As a matter of fact, there's kind of a a quote that survived down through history, and it's where one Roman centurion who, who had seen thousands of Christians die turns to another centurion. These are high ranking Roman soldiers, and he says, Behold, these Christians die well. Whether you believe that or not, you still have to account for the fact that hundreds of thousands of people became Christians, even though they were being persecuted and killed. And then another ripple effect would be changed lives. We could go through the room today, and we could have literally hundreds and hundreds of people just from this room walk up here, grab a mic, and tell you how Jesus has changed their life for the good. It would take hours, and and we would love it. Change lives. And I know a lot of people would say, well, well, Kevin, you're throwing all this stuff out, but, you know, it's still, it just doesn't seem solid enough proof. I just want to point out something real quick, if that's kind of how you're thinking. The the ripple evidence, it's solid enough proof for the scientific community. As a matter of fact, I I was just reading earlier this week, this last week, about dark matter and dark energy. Kind of fascinating stuff. Dark matter and dark energy, you can't see it, you can't observe it, you can't measure it. But scientists, the majority of scientists believe that dark matter and dark energy is 95% of the universe. Wow. You know, 95%. And 
And they're, and, and they're saying, we know that it's there because we can't see it or measure it or observe it, but we can see its effect on other things in the universe. For example, uh, the fact that the universe is expanding, it's actually expanding at an increasing rate, and they believe dark energy is the reason that it's doing that. So you can go up to a scientist and you could say, hey, you can't see it, you can't observe it, you can't measure it, I'm not buying it. I don't believe in dark energy, dark matter. And a scientist would probably say, well, that's okay. But for intellectual integrity, you have to now tell me what is making the impact on these other things that we see in the universe. If it's not dark energy and dark matter, then what's doing that? Because you've got to come up with that. Same thing with the resurrection. You cannot believe in the resurrection, but for intellectual integrity, you have to come up with a theory or a reason that all this ripple effect has happened because here's the deal. Something hit this world around 30 AD with such force that it changed the world forever and we can still see the ripples today. So if that wasn't the resurrection, then what was it? That's what you need to kind of wrestle with. The last few weeks, we've been talking about the historical Jesus and his very exclusive claim, you know, and how how people didn't like it. Jesus offended a lot of people, first of all, because he said he was God. Secondly, and Jesus offends people today this way, Jesus said he was the only way. He said he was the only way to the Father. There was no other way, which means every other religion in the world is false. That's what Jesus said. And only Christianity is true. That's offensive to people, but that's what he claimed. The greatest moral teacher in the world claimed to be God. And so that's either true or it's not true. If it's not true, then he either lied about it or he didn't know any better. He's kind of crazy and he thinks it's true, but it isn't. But think about this. After the resurrection, tens of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem believed that claim immediately. Why? If you think about it, this last week I was thinking, it's interesting Jesus, who made the most exclusive claims in the world, because of that brought the most inclusive religion to the world. Because we're all in the same boat. So, that's why we should believe, but what does it mean? What's the resurrection mean to us? Well, the resurrection means... That what it proves, it solidifies, it verifies that what Jesus said and what he claimed was true. And what he did on the cross was effective. He claimed to be the savior of the world. And I think, you know, think about it. Just to save a life. How cool that is if you could save somebody's life. I've done CPR and didn't save anybody's life. But, uh, but what if you did? I, I was just noticing um, a few weeks ago 
that uh, there was a Medal of Honor winner, uh, Senior Chief Ed Byer, actually from the Bowling Green area, received a Medal of Honor for something that happened in Afghanistan. Just got it a few weeks ago, but it was for an event that happened a couple years ago. And uh, that's where, in Afghanistan, an American doctor was taken hostage. And so, uh, because, and he was just there trying to do good, um, the Islamic radicals took him hostage. And so there's consequences to, to kidnapping. And so some higher-ups in, in our military decided, we're going to get this doctor back, and we're going to kill these guys. And so a SEAL team went in. They went in at night, heloed in. They all night long went to this village. They thought they knew the house where the guy was. And sure enough, as they got toward the house, they were actually discovered, and a firefight started. Senior Chief Ed Byers was the breacher. That meant he was the guy that was supposed to create the opening for the doorway. And even though there's now fire, everybody's awake, and guns are, are going off everywhere, he makes it to this, this little rock house. And the doorway is like seven or eight heavy blankets. And he starts tearing these blankets down. He has nothing to hide behind. And he's doing this, and there's just, you know, Live fire everywhere. He gets all the blankets down. Then the next guy on his team was supposed to, to charge in just as he got it breached. Well, the guy did, and when the guy went in, he got shot. Next, Ed Byers went in. He shot the guy that shot his guy. And it's darkness. It's kind of chaotic. Bullets flying everywhere. He finds another adult male, adult male. He tackles him, wrestles him to the ground. And then he hears the English words of the doctor, the doctor shouting out to him in the darkness. He crawls over to the doctor quickly and bullets flying everywhere, covers the doctor with his body so the doctor wouldn't be hit by all this firing. As he's doing that, the rest of the team is coming through the doorway. As that's happening, more guards are coming in from the back room. Guard comes in, starts shooting up the team, He's down on the ground. He pulls one of the guards down, disarms him, immobilizes him until one of the other team members could eliminate him. And for this, he gets the Medal of Honor. He saved a life. Here's what I've noticed about people who save lives. It's two things. You have to have the desire to do it because not everybody has the desire to put themselves in harm's way to save somebody else, right? So you have to have the desire, the heart to do it. Not everybody does. But then secondly, and and hopefully though in a crowd like this, a lot of us would have that kind of a desire. But then secondly, you have to have the ability. And probably almost none of us, although we have a couple of guys that that have trained with special forces, but probably almost none of us would have that kind of ability because we haven't been through that kind of training and we don't know how we would react when bullets are flying everywhere. You see, Jesus came not to just save a person or a team of people. Jesus came to save the world. And he had the desire, that's what we see on the cross. He had the heart desire to willingly lay down his life for the benefit of all of us. Had the desire, he can't question it. But also the resurrection proves He had the ability. You see, the resurrection proved that Jesus was indeed God 
and therefore what he did was effective for us. He had the desire and he had the ability. Because he was God, his sacrifice worked to pay for our sins. And then the third question is simply, how do we respond to that? Well, you can respond to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in one of two ways. And really, there's only two ways. You either believe or doubt. Belief or doubt. It's the only two ways to respond. I don't know if you caught it, but when we were reading Matthew's eyewitness testimony, he said something very interesting, and I want you to catch that. In verse 17, he said, this was after the resurrection. Jesus says, hey, tell the disciples, meet me in Galilee. And then the disciples go to Galilee, and then they see Jesus. And here's verse 17. It says, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. First of all, if we're making this up about Jesus, we're trying to promote Christianity, do we include that? Oh, they just saw the greatest miracle in the world. A guy called the shot, said he would raise from the dead, and did it, and we worship him. By the way, some were doubtful. They wouldn't do that. And secondly, it's, it's simply this. I, I used to think, I would talk to people who were not Christians, and I'd be telling them, you know, here's who Jesus is, and here's, here's why you should believe, here's the evidence. And sometimes people say, you know, I believe he lived and all that. I mean, you can't even deny that historically. And I, may, I believe that he even did miracles. But if he would just do a miracle for me, if he would just do, if I was there, if I could see a miracle, then I would believe. And I used to think, fair enough, you know, good point. I don't think that anymore. Now when somebody says that to me, I say, well, I get where you're coming from, but you know what? As much as I've already told you, if you don't believe now, and Jesus came and did a miracle right in front of you, would you believe? I'm thinking, probably not. Because I don't think it's a lack of evidence that's keeping you from believing at this point. I think it might be not about the evidence. It might be more about the fact that you don't want to believe that there's a God who created you, who you should submit to and live his way. And because you want to kind of be the boss of your own life, you don't want to submit to God. And that's your barrier to belief. You see, Christ came and he had to die. That doesn't make sense to everyone. Some people say, I don't get it. God allows his son to die. Jesus voluntarily crucified. Makes no sense. But it, it does to me, and I think a lot, of, a lot of you. It makes sense because forgiveness is never free. What if after this service, you know, a record crowd, and so the parking lot gets really jumbled, which, you know, good luck. But you know how that goes. And, and let's say I have a, my truck's out in the parking lot, and you hit my truck. Or better yet, let's say I had a new truck, because my truck's already kind of dented, but let's say I decided to buy a new truck, and I had it parked out there, and you, you hit my truck. 
And so we went out there, and it was kind of an awkward conversation. You know, I'm a pastor, and you're here at Grace, and we're kind of talking about it. And then you tell me, you don't have insurance. And I'm like, what? But, you know, I am a pastor, and you did, you know, come to Grace. And so I, you know, I just say, hey, you know what? Don't worry about it. And you say, but I can pay. I say, hey, don't worry about it. I forgive you. Don't even worry about it. Done. Now, I can forgive, but there's a cost to that, right? Because if I want, it's going to cost me to go get the dent fixed, right? So that's money out of my pocket. Or if you know me, more likely you know, I'm just going to drive the truck with the dent in it. And then someday I'm going to sell that truck with the dent in it. And that still will be a cost for me, right? You see, anytime forgiveness is offered, it means somebody is absorbing the cost, not the person who owes. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the resurrection proved he is who he says he is. And that he alone was qualified, had the ability to absorb the cost of our penalty for sin. Because God says he created us. It's the whole story of the Bible. He created us and he created us special in God's image. He created us with the ability to love. And that means free will. You have to be free in order to love. So he creates us with the freedom to love. And and basically, we can use this freedom to love him back. But we don't do that. All of us, instead, we go our own way and we sin against our creator. And God tells us how we should live righteously, but we don't live that way. We sin against him. And then God says, because we're sinning against our infinite God, holy, righteous creator, that there's consequences for that. It's worse than it is for the Taliban. It's not just death. Because we're sinning against an infinite God, it's separation from a holy and righteous God forever. That's the just penalty. All of us deserve hell. That's what Jesus was teaching us. That's justice, and God is just. But because God created you and he knows you, every detail about your life, and he loves you more than you can ever imagine, he made a way for you to be forgiven. And it was at great cost. He allowed his one and only son, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago to come live on this earth as a human being and live a perfect life for 33 years. And then voluntarily give up his life and allow himself to be tortured to death by those he created in order for us to have a way. But it's not automatic. We have to receive the gift by responding to him in faith. And faith is just believing who Jesus is and trusting in what he did for us on the cross that he paid for our sins. And so we have to respond in faith. And right now, I just want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to do just that before we leave. So I'd like everyone to bow your heads. The reason I'm asking you to bow your heads is just so even though we're crowded in here and there's a lot of potential distractions, I want you to just try to think about you and God, your heart to God. Just have a private moment if you could. And I want you to reflect back to try to figure out in your life, has there ever been a time where you've trusted in Christ 
and Christ alone for your salvation. Ever been a time where you realize that you're not good enough to be saved, that you haven't done enough church? Salvation is not about church or religious rituals or being a good person or keeping commandments. Being a Christian is about trusting in Christ alone. None of the stuff we do, just what he did. And if you're not sure you ever came to God like that, I want to give you the opportunity today. Scripture says we can call out to God for forgiveness. He will hear us. And so I'm going to lead you in a prayer. If you, if you don't know that you've ever done this before, and uh, you don't have to say it exactly the way I say it, and you don't even have to say it verbally. God knows your every thought. But silently, if you just express these things about your newfound faith, to God, something like this. Pray along with me. Father God in heaven, I understand that I'm a sinner, that I've rebelled against you like everyone else, and it's worse than I think I've committed more sins than I'd even know. I'm, I'm worse than I ever thought. But God, I have also come to understand that I'm loved more than I've ever dared to dream. God, that you love me completely and you love me at great cost by allowing your son to die on the cross in payment for the penalty for my sins. And God, right now, I'm placing my trust in Jesus alone for what he's done for me. And I'm asking you to come into my life and help me to follow you. Help me to live life your way. Help me to turn my life from the way I want to do things to following you. Just help me do that. Just not to earn my salvation, can't be earned, already given as a gift, but just in a loving response to what you've done for me. Help me to live your way. In Christ's name, amen. While our heads are still bowed, uh, just before we leave, I'm, I'm going to ask you if you prayed that prayer, as far as you know, sincerely for the first time. And the reason I'm asking you to, to raise your hand, just pop it up for a second or two and, and back down, and I'm not going to call you down or ask you to do anything else. I'm asking you just to kind of affirm to yourself, first of all, that you've, you've made a decision to follow Christ. And then secondly, so that we can pray for you. So heads down, I'm looking around. But uh, if, if, you, if you prayed that prayer, and as far as you know, for the first time, and, and you were sincere, I would just like you to, to put your hand up where I can see it, just for a second or two, and put it right back down. Thank you. Just put, put it up. For, just hold it up there for just a couple seconds so hopefully I could see you. And then right back down. Thank you. Thank you. Father, we thank you for, for these who have uh, placed their trust in you just, just like many of us have in this room. Father, we pray that they feel your presence and Lord, that you'd help them to get started right and they would attach themselves to a church, maybe even our church, Grace, as we come together to learn more about you. And God, may, we also thank you for maybe those who, who made that decision but didn't raise their hand. Lord, whatever, you know that. God, thank you. Thank you for the joy of Easter. In Christ's name, amen. You know, Scripture says, uh, I mentioned it before, the exclusive claims of Jesus brought to us the most inclusive religion in the world, that we're all in the same boat. There's no difference. The walls have come down between men, women, white, black, rich, poor, doesn't matter. There are no more walls, no walls between us, no walls between us and God when we put our trust 
in Jesus' name.